Hey, what's going on? It's Bill Burr, and it's time for the Monday Morning Podcast for Monday, August 22nd, 2022. What's going on? How you doing? Hey, how the fuck are you doing? Um, I'm recording this on Tuesday, a day late. I apologize. I apologize to one and all. I know uh, I didn't mean to offend anybody if uh, by claiming that Tuesday is Monday. I identify as Tuesday. Tuesday identifies as Monday. Um, yeah, I just had a fucking uh, one of those travel days yesterday. You know, I was flying out of Boston, Logan. And, um, you know, I, I woke up in the morning, ba-do, ba-do-do, and I saw the clouds. And it started to rain, and I knew it was going to suck. Um, yeah, it fucking, just one of those days. Um, oh, my God. And you feel like ripping someone's head off. Did anybody see that, that fucking, did I talk about that? Yeah, I already talked about that. That fucking three-part documentary. Um, about Woodstock 99. It's kind of an amazing thing where nobody on any level from the bands to uh, to the promoters to the audience members, nobody took responsibility for what the fuck happened there. <laughs> I feel like all the people that snuck into the event in 1969 and 1994 should have apologized the promoters should have apologized. And the bands should have said, yeah, maybe we should have said, hey, everybody, just remember, look out for each other out there. This is about peace and love instead of just fucking winding them up even more. Or my favorite was just everybody being like, yeah, it just felt really fucked up. So we just got the fuck out of there. <laughs> it felt like someone was going to get hurt. So I left. Um, anyway, yeah, it was, um, yeah, I just fucking woke up. It was like 800 foot ceilings in like zero visibility. So I was like, well, I'm going to guess that we're going to be delayed. Um, I had a nice little fucking up and down flight, right? And I'm not talking about the mile high club. I'm talking about a nice quick flight. All right. Just leave Boston, go up. Be in the air for an hour or so, come right down, land, go through customs, the easiest customs ever, Canada. Oh, how are you? Thanks for showing up. No, they're not like that. I'm kidding. You know, it's funny was Kenny, the lady at the, um, at security. Um, is there anything better than like a fucking beautiful chick that's got a fucking gun? You know, you feel like you're in a fucking spy movie. She was going, uh, <laughs> she's like, she goes, you're working here? I said, yeah. He goes, where are you working? And Kenny was like, uh, I don't know how to say it, Discotia Bank Arita. And she just fucking broke on this big smile and she just goes, Scotia Bank Arita. <laughs> Kenny was like, yeah. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Um, Scotia Bank, Scotia Bank, Arena. Um, yeah, we had like a fucking one o'clock flight. And um, I don't know what it was. No, was it two o'clock? Yeah, it was two o'clock flight. And I remember uh, at some point, because I was, you know, I had a, the big gig at Fenway the night before. I was kind of nodding off because I was sleeping. At one point, they were like, okay, we're finally going to push away from the gate. Uh, we got to sit here on the tarmac. They're giving us a time of 4.18. So we'd already been sitting on the plane for like two hours. Just one of those deals. And then we we take off. And then when we landed, because we were so late, there was no gate available. And we stayed on the ground for like another fucking 45 minutes. Um, it basically took me from 12 noon to about eight o'clock at night to get from Boston to Toronto. (laughs) 
So I apologize for not um, having the podcast out earlier, okay? I know that was just a bunch of excuses. You're probably thinking, well, hey, man, like, why didn't you just record when you were on the plane sitting there on the tarmac? Why didn't you make use of your time? Um, You know, maybe I could have done that. I don't know. But um, all I know is I'm fucking here in Toronto and I got two gigs that I'm very, I'm looking forward to. And uh, I'm finally in one city for more than one night. So I rented a drum kit. I'm going to go over to the arena. I'm going to fucking play some shit. Going to have a good time. And, uh, And with that, I've been kind of avoiding talking about Fenway because I don't even know how to wrap my head around that that even happened. Um... Uh, there's really, I don't know, there's no fucking words to put into what that experience was like. And um, it was it was the biggest crowd I'd ever been in front of. It just went on forever. They put the stage right in center field, which was the most perfect place ever for a performer I think, you know, that's the one thing that that was one, my major walk away of that gig was if you are a center fielder in Major League Baseball, you have the best seat in the house as far as being able to take in a ballpark. You know, it was just, I was standing on stage and straight 12 noon, it just said Fenway Park all the way up at the top. And to my right was the Green Monster, where Carlton Fisk hit the foul pole in 1975. On my on my left was the pesky pole, and the crowd just went on forever. And then it just went into the stands and just went all the way up into the night. And at the top, it said Fenway Park, and it was the perfect evening. There was a nice breeze, and the fans. It was they went to a comedy show and you could take them on a ride. You could bring them up. You could bring them down. You know, if I wanted to make it quiet, they would all be quiet. I don't think I got heckled once. I couldn't believe it. I was worried because, you know, the show was supposed to start at seven and we didn't go on until eight because the lines were so long and people had to like put their phones into those yonder bags because for whatever reason, people really like to hold comedians accountable <laughs> for jokes. They, for some reason, really like to, uh, I don't know what, they just want to get you in trouble. And they spend all of this um, energy doing that. And I think it's because they can get us. And there's a feeling of satisfaction where if they sort of devoted that same sort of energy to like the pharmaceutical industry, the fucking warmongers, the, you know, the banks and all of that, they would just get nowhere and it would be frustrating. Where with us, they can be like, I can't believe you said that. And then, you know, you can at least get some attention. I don't know what it is. So anyway, we had to make sure all the phones were locked up, which is, I, you know, fucking sucks for people coming in but I will tell you this it makes for a way better show because people aren't looking at their phones and um, now that I think of it I did see one guy looking down at his phone and I was going to make a joke about him checking the scores on the West Coast game and call him a degenerate gambler because I kind of forgot that's what was happening anyway so You know, we made like a little, we filmed the show and we made like a little mini documentary about me starting out in Boston and all of that. And one of the spots we went to was Fenway Park. And I went in there and Lady Gaga was performing there um, that night on, on the Friday, I think, when we went to film. And I went in there and I was fucking nervous. I'm not gonna lie to you. I was nervous like... Like, oh, you know, this is a big one. (laughs) Don't fuck this up. But when I went in there, 
I don't know what it was. It's just because it is a small bar, ballpark. I mean, it's fucking huge for a comedy show, but like you you go in there and your mindset is a baseball game. And it's just a little place. It's a little intimate place. It's why I think it's the best ballpark by far to go see a baseball game. And um, I went in there and I just had this feeling. I'm like, this is going to be fucking awesome. And it's not going to be hard. It's actually going to be easy. This is going to be great. Um, and I was walking around the park when we were shooting a few things. And it just made me want to go to a baseball game. And all of these memories were coming back. Like, you know, I was doing that when I was on stage. Like, you know, I was joking. I was make sure you take it all in. And I'm like, you know, I can't take it all in. I'm not fucking sailing. But I kind of was able to. Because right in front of me, it just said Fenway Park. And then I had all of these memories. And I would be looking around going like, I saw a father and son get into a fight right there. One of the funniest fucking things I ever saw in my life. Um, it was this, this dude, I don't know, his son had some sort of issue. Um, like, I don't know what. Um, he kid wasn't drink. He had some sort of mental issue going on, and he was fucking a big kid. And he was getting all amped up, and his dad was telling him to calm down. And it was just like, and the kid just had enough of his dad, and they just fucking went. <laughs> and the kid connected first, and then the dad threw a fucking really tight efficient fucking body shot which I thought came from a place of love he didn't headhunt he fucking hit him in the side this was the 80s all right there wasn't a lot of help for parents stressed out with some six foot four kid that was you know I don't know I don't I don't I still to this day don't know what the issue there was something going on there so you yeah, I don't know it was like funny, just, I don't know why it was funny. It was just funny because it was like fucking sad and, and, and the dad did what he had to do and he fucking stopped it because it was getting scary because he didn't know what was going to happen. I don't know. <laughs> you know what? I look, I don't, I don't, I just, it's something I saw. So I was thinking about that. And then I looked in the upper deck and it's like, that's the time I was drinking And uh, I literally blacked out for three innings. And when I came to my shirt, I just had mustard all over it because I'd eaten a hot dog. And when I came around, like people was, I could just sense people sort of looking at me in the side of their eye. And so I just started talking to people, you know, to let them know I was back. And I could just tell the way that they were looking at me like some, I did something fucked up. Probably just them watching me eating the hot dog. Like, I, I mean, mustard was all over my fucking shirt. Like, I used it as a napkin or something. I don't know what. I remember I was wearing a blue Michigan Wolverine T-shirt. And it said Michigan in yellow. And then I just had mustard all over the fucking thing. Um, when I looked along the first baseline, I was thinking, like, that's where I went in 1986. When Roger Clemens was, I believe, having his first Cy Young uh, season. And he'd already established himself as this up-and-coming power pitcher. It was only his second year in. And I remember he had won, like, some ridiculous amount of games in a row. We went to the game in, like, May or June or something like that. And he was already, like, fucking, like, 10-0 and or 12-0 and and something. And I went with my dad, and we had standing room only tickets along the first baseline. The first time I went to a game was in right field, sat in the blue seats. We saw him play the Tigers. All of that shit. Dwight Evans gunning people down from fucking right field. So I was able to think all of that stuff while um, I was doing my show. But like, um, you know, we came down early. We did like a sound check. And I just remember thinking like, this is just going to go great. This is going to be great. Right. And uh, and then the fucking show started. And like, I don't know, man, I, I. got really fucking like antsy 
it's weird. It wasn't nervous. I was just like, I just want to fucking go. I just got to get up there. I just got to get up there and do this. And I finally, you know, Tony V was on stage and I, I was standing in the tunnel, that center field garage. All those years I just saw like, what the fuck is in there? You know, I got to be in there. Right. And, um, I'm sorry, guys. There's just so much shit to try to remember. First of all, our fucking green rooms, we had, we had to walk into the Red Sox dugout and go down that tunnel. And all of those years of watching them go down there, I thought you just went like fucking 20, 30 feet down and you just walked into the clubhouse. It's actually you walk in to the left is the batting cages um, and like exercise bikes and shit like that. Then you go straight, you make a left, you go up like three stairs, you make a right, go up another three stairs, and then you make another right, and you walk to like, you know, like five feet, and then a left into like the clubhouse. And I always thought you just walked straight in, and like there it was, and there was a flat screen TV for Chris Sale to beat the shit out of, but it, was, it wasn't like that. And so, but anyway, we were like beyond where that was just sitting in the dressing room. It was funny. When we were in the dressing room, I literally felt like I was sitting in like a hotel, like waiting to uh, do some corporate gig. And then finally I was just like, because it was taking so long with the yonder bags, kind of like me telling this fucking story. I was like, I got to go out and see what's going on. So we went out, me and Tony B, we stood in the fucking dugout and saw all of these people coming in. And um, that's why I just got so fucking excited. Like, this is going to be fucking unbelievable. So anyway, they finally bring us around. Tony V goes up. I'm standing in that garage area in center field. And Tony immediately is getting laughs. It's going great and everything. And I'm basically tiptoeing towards the stage. And I come up the stage and I had a little lounge area with like couches and stuff where the lovely Nia was hanging out. And um, I was watching Tony and I was just like, holy shit, this is just a comedy show. You know, it's just in a baseball stadium. This is fucking bananas. And Tony fucking crushed. And then he, we did the, uh, we showed the trailer to old dads. People really liked it. And then they brought me out and I came out to Aerosmith moving out. Um, one of my favorite fucking deep cuts of Aerosmith. Um, it just sounded like a badass song. You know, Aerosmith is so connected to Boston. It just seemed right to go out to that. And um, I don't know. I went out on stage, and for some reason, I just started making fun of Fenway Park, like the signage, something about DraftKings. I vaguely remember doing that, like you would, just in any other gig. And I don't I don't know. I just did my show, and I had a... F- I, I, I still can't believe it happened. Still can't believe it happened. Everybody fucking laughed when they were supposed to laugh. I never got heckled. It was absolutely perfect. And um, I felt like I was up there for only like eight minutes. I think I did like an hour and 20, but I felt it felt like eight minutes. And it was so fucking mind-blowing. Like, when I got off stage, I, I had to ask people for, like, 10 minutes. Was this good? Was it all right? Did I do it? And they were like, it was fantastic. It couldn't have gone any better. And I was like, y- you sure? There was one part I thought I lost them a little bit. <laughs> I was, like, stammering when I... Uh when I got off stage and then we went up, you know, the after party was up in right field and it was, I got to it was little, when I said thank you to people at the end of the night, I almost, I almost got choked up. It was so fucking unbelievable. And then in the end, me and Tony were standing, you know, waiting for it sort of to clear out in the right field and people were walking out those exits in, in center field. And we were just standing down there looking at them and a few people saw me and Tony and they started yelling, you know, up to us and everything. I, we, you know, we felt like we won some election or something. All these people just yelling up. We were yelling down to them. And I was watching all the people walking out. And um, I think just watching all of the people walking out and them waving and saying thanks and they had a good time was as good a feeling as going up there, doing the show. And... Um, 
then we had the after party and we were sitting up and basically it was like center field is where we were like 10 rows up from the Ted Williams seat and we were just sitting there me and all my friends like comedian friends and my friends from high school um, turned it into like a cigar bar and after a while no one was talking about the show <clears throat> we were just sitting around telling funny stories about growing up in like you know the 70s and 80s meet all my friends and my you know my family was there and it was just fucking it was an it was an amazing night and uh i i still can't believe it happened i just want to thank everybody for coming out and um it was it was fucking perfect to the point there was no hangover after the show like um you know, I had yesterday off and I was really worried that like I was going to be like, you know, now I'm on the other side of it. Now what? And um, it hasn't been like that at all. It's just like fucking that was unbelievable. I can't believe I got to do that. It couldn't have gone any better. And uh, it's kind of fucking awesome that it's not hanging over my head anymore because I'm not going to lie to you. I played that gig off the whole time. Like, what are you thinking? I'm like, hey, no, I'm not really thinking about it. I'm just working on my act. You know, how do you play a baseball stadium? Well, you know, I guess we're going to find out. I just had all those stupid fucking answers. But in my head, I was like, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to do that. <laughs> that, was, that was what was really going on. So I had to keep that at bay by uh, pretending to be overly relaxed about the gig. That's basically the truth of it. Um, and now that it went well, I can admit to you that I was, uh, you know, I've obviously, you know, because of my lack of athletic ability, I never fucking played a game seven in my life. I have no idea what that feels like, but I feel like I have felt the closest thing of like my feeling was for fuck's sakes, why can't the gig be right now? Why can't they just 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 get me out there? And if I'm going to lose, let's get it over with. And if I'm going to win, let me just go out there and win and let, let's fucking get this over with. In the back of my head, I'm like going like, no, 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 no. But don't look at it that way. You got to go out there and make sure you take it in and all of that. There was all of that stuff. So, um, you know, and then meanwhile, as this thing was hanging over my head, I was having, as always, you know, I go back, I go back east to Boston for like, you know, 10, 12 days these last couple of years. And um, I hit all of these places, you know, from my childhood. And I added a new one. I went to this pizza place in fucking East Boston that lived up to the hype. All right. I'm going to give you guys the name of it here at the risk of, uh, you know, people getting mad. Like, dude, don't say what the fucking spot is. There's a place. If you ever go to Boston, uh, I hope I say it right. Santarpios is where I went. Um, you know, there's all of these places. You know, uh, Linwood Cafe, Cape Cod Pizza, Town Spa. There's one that I still have to go to called Pleasant Cafe in Roslindale. And there are all these places that they just have these little personal sized bar pizzas. And uh, that's sort of the Boston style pizza. And it's funny, like I'm saying these places because, you know, <clears throat> New Yorkers will come up and they'll be like, hey, you know, I went to Boston. The fucking pizza sucks. And it's like, you know, it doesn't. You just don't know where to go. And the reality is, is this is even in New York City. The reality with New York City is there's only five or six places to go. However, there's like 15,000 fucking places to buy a slice. And those five or six places in New York are so fucking good that the reputation is through the ceiling. And I know Chicago's the same way, and I still don't know where to go in Chicago. You know, everybody makes fun of it, you know. I remember John Stewart said, it's not pizza, it's fucking lasagna, uh, the deep dish style. But there has to be a reason why 
it's so popular there. So I would imagine in Chicago that there's like five or six places to go. So I went to this place, Santarpio's in East Boston, um, with Club Soda Kenny, and we were, because uh, I was in um, Saratoga Springs, New York, the Saturday night. I did, fr- I did, what did I do? I did Wednesday, two shows, I did Giggles. On Friday, I did Nick's Comedy Stop, which is where I started my career 30 years ago, over 30 years ago. Um, and then I went to Saratoga Springs on Saturday, and then Sunday night I did Fenway. So I was beyond ready. Um, so anyway, before we went to Saratoga Springs, <clears throat> this place, East Boston, is right near Logan Airport, and we swung in there, and it ended up being like bigger-sized pizzas. And the crust was a lot thicker. It was a different style. It wasn't that classic Boston bar pizza. But I'm going to tell you that anytime I go someplace new, I always get the, the plain cheese, the margarita, because I, you know, you can hide behind your toppings. I want to see, does your sauce have the fucking zing, you know, with the cheese or whatever. I sound like fucking Dave Portnoy right now. Um, and this place totally lived up to the hype, man. It was fucking delicious. And what I find with all great pizza places is they understand that the job of the cheese is to fucking complement the sauce. That's where you go to the next level. All of these fucking idiots that think the cheese is the star of the show, you know, that's the starting quarterback, you know, to the point they literally stick cheese in the fucking crust. They don't know how to make pizza. Um, Anybody else where, you know, the, the, the tomato sauce, the piece of sauce that they put on, and it's got that zing, that tang to it, and then the cheese just fucking seamlessly blends into it. I'm getting hungry right now. It was absolutely fucking delicious. And um, I've only known, like, the South Shore places. Um, and when I was really young, you know, I, I lived up on the North Shore before I came down south, but um, I was too young. You know, I moved in like the mid-70s down to the My family moved down to the South Shore, so I missed out on all those places. So anyway, when you go up to Boston, you know, go to those fucking places. And uh, if you find some other ones, let me know about it. Um, Yeah, I'm trying to see. I got a whole bunch of... This Marblehead House of Pizza, that's another one I have to try out. I'm sort of determined to go to every one of those little bar pizza spots, you know, over the years when I go to Boston. And uh, so if you guys have like your spots, that's, that's, see, that's the really cool thing I think about living in Massachusetts is every two to three towns, you know, has a place as a little bar, a little hole in the wall, looking like a dive bar type of place that just makes a fucking outstanding pizza that every, everybody in the, you know, the area, like that's your spot um, that you go to. So I got to do a little bit of that when I was at Logan Airport before, you know, waiting on the delay, you know, I got to go to, it was a Kelly's roast beef that they have there. There's also Bill and Bob's roast beef. I had Kelly's roast beef. It was fucking delicious. Um, although the bartender fucking annoyed me when we showed up. You know, we're standing there and it was just like, what do we do? Do we sit down? He's, we can talk to him. Do we order from you? Like Kenny's like, God, oh, do we order from you? And then I said, yeah, or do we gotta, like take like a picture? Do we take a picture of this thing here? You know, because they have that little fucking barcode looking thing on the table. And then the guy just goes like, you know, okay, you guys are asking me two different things right now. He does one of those things. And I was just like... I can't remember what I said to him. I said, yeah, we're trying to fucking test your memory, you douche. I fucking, I, like, there was somebody else earlier that day. Oh, I know, we went through fucking TSA. And for whatever reason, I wasn't, uh, you know, pre-checked. I thought I was, I always am. I walked by the lady, I showed her my ticket or whatever. And then there was this fucking guy at the TSA thing that he was one of those sing-songy cunts. You know what I mean? Where he'd be like, you don't have the right idea. No, the, the right ID or whatever, blah, 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 blah. And he was like doing that, but it was like totally passive aggressive, over the top. Everything was like, go fuck yourself underneath it. And I got up there and like the way he said that you're not TSA pre-check, 
I was looking at him like, is this guy fucking with me? Like, why would you say that in that happy tone? Like, hey, you're going to have to go to the back of another line. Like, <laughs> like I just want a car on the price is right. So I was looking at him like going like, all right, is he just fucking with me? Does he know I'm a comedian? So he's trying to break my balls. And I just sort of sat there. And then I realized he was serious. And I was just like, okay, all right, no worries. And I just kind of went over to the other line. And then I was standing there thinking about it. And I was like, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but was it me or was that guy like really thrilled to tell us to get the fuck out of that line? Um, so maybe that's what it was. So then I go to the fucking roast beef gun. He's like, OK, you, you guys were asking me two different things right now. Like, sh- shut the fuck up. We asked you two really simple things. How the fuck do we order a fucking sandwich here? With this new Buck Rogers technology where I just point my phone at the thing. I don't take a picture. Because I, I always end up taking a picture of the fucking thing. That actually happened earlier in that week when we were fucking calling up to make sure that we had. I was trying a different pizza place. And we're like, do you have, just calling over, just making sure you have a record of our order. And the guy goes, I don't. It's like, well, we ordered online. And the guy's like, well, I don't have record of it. And it's like, uh, well, can we just order through you? And he's like, uh, actually, no, you cannot. Uh, we have, a, we have a, a company that handles all our orders. It was like, you're at the place. You speak English. We speak English. Can we just order two fucking pizzas through you? And he's like... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, you can't. It's like, well, that's what the fuck we're saying. (laughs) I don't know what the fuck that was. I have a problem. Can you help me? No, I cannot. Like, who says it like that? Don't you usually just go, you know, unfortunately, I can't. I know this is a crazy system. I don't own the business. This is the way they run it. It makes no sense to me. I apologize. You know, no, I cannot. (laughs) Hey, I'm hanging from a cliff. I got two fingers left. Is there any way you can help me up? I cannot help you up. Unfortunately, you got to with your hand that's dangling from the cliff. Can you reach into your pocket and get out your phone and call the park ranger? We outsource helping people falling from a cliff. Um. Anyway, anyway, I don't know. Maybe this is just the fucking shit I was holding in to do, you know, so I wouldn't freak out and do the gig. So I know I just babbled for uh, a half an hour. Uh, people, I did stand, stand up at Fenway Park in front of almost fucking 40,000 people. It was like 38 or 39,000 people. It was the biggest fucking crowd I've ever been. It, it just went on for fucking ever, and they were all amazing. Oh, and I also forgot... You know, it was my 35th year uh, high school reunion, and uh, there was a bunch of people I went to high school with were hanging in a bar that was inside of Fenway Park somehow. I don't know how that works. And the security guy took me up through the back way, and I walked in through the back door into the crowd, literally right into my high school reunion. And I got to see, like, you know, I could only do it for a minute because it was, uh, I had to do the show, and it was, you know, super fucking loud, and it wasn't just, the class of 87 there, it was, it was just, you know, a bunch of people else going to the show. So I was only able to be in there for like 10 minutes, but I got to see like 20 or 30 people that, um, you know, some of whom I, you know, I don't think I had seen since I fucking, we graduated, man. And it was just great seeing all of them. I had a really cool graduation, graduation class. Like I had a real mellow grade that liked to party and a bunch of funny fucking people in there and uh i got to see a good you know i feel like 20 or 30 of them before i dip back out again it was kind of like the perfect night all right i'm done babbling all right i know that you guys are probably rolling your eyes at this point but it was fucking um it was an experience that i will never ever ever forget so thank you to everybody and with that let's do some reads here all right simply safe everyone Here's a question. Is there anything that matters more than the safety of you and your loved ones? Um, 
Yeah, of course not. You know, I mean, you don't have to be so selfish. Maybe you could say world peace and every everybody having safety. But, you know, the way the game is set up and how, you know, everybody's chasing the dollar, at the end of the day, you got to go self-preservation. And isn't it nice that a company understands capitalism and they realize that it's about the safety of you and the people you love and everybody else can go fuck themselves. So isn't it strange that many home security companies don't act that way? This is why I use and trust Simply Safe Home Security. Their advanced security technology helps me sleep at night. And they always put me and my family's safety first. Here's why I love it. With 24-7 professional monitoring, Simply Safe agents call you the moment a threat is detected and dispatch police or first responders in an emergency. You know, I take issue with first responders, all right? You're not a first responder. I am. I'm the guy that hears the axe murderer. I respond first and pick up my phone and say, I think there's someone in my house. Um, even if you're not home or can't be reached, Simply Safe will fucking dispatch people, I guess. I don't know. Simply Safe monitoring agents truly care about your well being and are highly trained to keep you calm and safe during stressful situations. Staying online with you until help arrives. That has to be an intense job. Simply Safe's customer first policy makes sure you're taken care of with affordable plans starting at less than a dollar a day and no long-term contract or hidden fees because feeling safe at home shouldn't break the bank. Customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com slash burr. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. Go to simplysafe.com slash burr. That's S-I-M-P-L-I. S-A-F-E dot com slash burr. Here's another thing I was thinking before I go. This is just going to all be about doing the Fenway gig. I was thinking about all the gigs that I did that led up there. I remember when I was living in New York. You know, after I did stand up for three and a half years and moved down to New York and then I came back. And I headlined Spaghetti Freddy's. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which to me is one of the worst names ever For a fucking restaurant There's just something about it rhyming It's just silly It just doesn't make me feel like you're going to take anything seriously uh, Spaghetti Freddy Like they're just going to fucking, you know Reach into the pot with a big spoon Swirl it around And then pull out a bunch of spaghetti And then just fucking throw, you throw it Like hang onto the spoon And just zing it across the room There's you have fucking spaghetti so I played the basement of Spaghetti Freddy's on Route 1 in Norwood, right next to that golfing driving range. And there was a Howard Johnson's across the parking lot. And I did fucking stand up there, too, over the years. I think if you go up Route 1, at some point, every restaurant had an open mic or something like that. Or Nick's Comedy Stop. Like, Nick's Comedy Stop, I remember, had... Um, Oh, fuck, sorry. Tired here. Nick's Comedy Stop had, um, like, these satellite rooms. They had their downtown main room, and then they they would have them, like, in Chinese restaurants. Or there was, like, this fucking, like, nightclub ballroom-looking place out on Framingham on Route 9. There was one in Randolph's at, like, the Holiday Inn. There was the Maui in... uh, Brockton Mass with the highest fucking stage ever. It was like he was standing on top of a refrigerator box, except it was solid. I remember that you were way up in the air on this little fucking postage stamp of a stage for some fucking reason. Like, like your feet were like five feet above the heads of the people sitting down in the front row. I don't know why. And the room wasn't even that big. You just They just had you up there. Um... I don't know what. I felt like like uh, like you were in Superman talking to uh, Lauren Green or some shit. Um, anyway, the uh, and then they had the the Kowloon in Saugus, another Chinese restaurant. Just all of those gigs came back. But I remember when I did Spaghetti Freddy's. Uh, 
they had a function room down in the basement. So you're on in here. I fucking went. Uh, I, I, when I tell you, dude, like there was like eight people in the crowd. There was like, and I knew like six of them. It was like, you know, my family members came out and a couple of their friends. And then there was like a two top of strangers. And I'm trying to play this fucking gig by just looking over everybody's head because I actually am related to 80% of the crowd. And I still somehow had like a decent set. But I just remember... um, I just remember being really embarrassed. <laughs> I didn't wait. I don't even think it was embarrassing at that point in my career because I wasn't selling any tickets. I think that the victory was as shitty as this gig is. I am headlining it. I've worked my way up to headlining the basement of a Spaghetti Freddy's in Norwood, Massachusetts. So I think I, on some level, I felt like my career was still moving forward while at the same time I was also thinking like are you really headlining on a gig like this or are you more just sort of going on last and um, I still think I had an okay set and uh, I don't know yeah there was just a lot of those moments that I guess should have been like humiliating enough to make you want to think about doing another job. But like, if you love doing stand-up, that never enters your head. You just sort of look at them. It's just funny stories to tell your friends. Yeah, I played a place called Spaghetti Freddy's, basically in front of my family members and a couple people I went to high school with and this random couple. (laughs) Oh my God. I just remember, too, like the fucking... I remember across the parking lot, between the driving range, between the two places was a driving range, and that other place was the Howard Johnson's. And I remember playing the lounge area. And it actually ended up being... I actually killed. It was a crowded bar, and no one was fucking really listening. And I went up there, and I I improved something that got people to pay attention. And I was actually able to get on a little bit of a roll and did, like, five minutes. And I got off stage, and there was this comedian, Greg Carey, who I had not seen in, like, 20 years, who showed up to my gig in Queens, New York, with Tommy Amato. And uh, it was so great to see him. Another guy who was always nice to me, just like Tony V, and would help you out and everything. Um, was not, you know, I'm not, you know, some of the, just, it was just when I started in stand up, stand up was in a nosedive. It was like in a free fall coming out of the 80s where all of a sudden people just didn't want to go out to comedy clubs anymore. And it was, it was like a housing bubble except with stand up. And all of these rooms were collapsing and the work was not really drying up as much as it was coming back down to um, like the level that it should have been at and a lot of people were getting squeezed out so there was a lot of bitter headliners and uh, Greg Carey and Tony V were never like that because they were both funny guys so they weren't like nervous they they knew that they were going to be fine I guess I don't know are they just good people I have no idea so anyway um yeah, I remember fucking bombing there. I'm just going to be telling stories the whole fucking time. All, all of my early day gigs. Like Route 1 to me is an amazing like highway because when I'm on the North Shore, that's all like my childhood when I was really, really young. And some of the places that I played, not just the Kowloon or Giggles, if you kept going up north... I remember um, <clears throat> I remember Alan the Monkeys, which was uh, had Dane Cook. It was a sketch group. Dane, they'd all do stand up and then they'd do sketch in the end. It was Dane Cook, Bobby Kelly, Al Del Benny, and um, oh my God, I'm old. What was the last kid's name? 
it'll come to me. Um, and I opened for them. They booked themselves in like this fucking Elks Club or some shit like that because they had won the BCN Comedy Riot at Stitches and they were trying to headline their own show or whatever. And like we were all young and we didn't know how to promote shit. And there was like fucking like five people there. And I remember all of us, we were just like, they were like embarrassed, but they were also like laughing. And I was laughing. And it was kind of this fun moment because we were all so young and it felt cool to me to be doing their gig because everybody else's gig that I was doing had been doing it like 20 years and they were like legends of Boston comedy and we were just a bunch of young punks and as much as nobody showed up, it was still, I was working, you know, a show from these people that were part of my graduating class and uh, long story short, whatever, it was just, it was comedy death, but like we all supported each other and laughed at each other's jokes. Um... Yeah, all the way up there. Rob Steen used to have gigs up there. All of these guys. I just remember all of these fucking gigs. All the way up to like... I remember working bars in like Revere. Um, remember Dick Doherty's had like rooms all over the place. Like fucking Drake it and Danvers and... All of these fucking places over the years. And I think... Uh, I don't know, just driving around waiting for this fucking giant gig. I just, all of those memories came back. It was just a really, really cool time. So I apologize that I'm being old Billy Reminis here. Um, I don't feel like I've been even remotely funny on this one. Let's um, <clears throat> let's get to some of your questions. Maybe we can get to some comedy here. Um, all right, what do we got here? Uh, all right. Boston. Bill, I'm in Boston for the first time to see your show. I think the stereotypes are dead on and dead wrong. Lots of meatheads. Absolutely. I am a proud meathead. I was always I was joking with somebody who was talking about how Massachusetts has the Boston area has some of the great universities in the country. You know, Harvard, MIT, and even like Boston University. And like, but barely anybody from Massachusetts goes there. We have a bunch of like free, free agent, smart kids from around the world that come in there. And, um, you know, as much as, you know, we liked goodwill hunting, we all knew that there was really no smart kid that came from a broken home that could figure out a math problem that had like sentences and triangles in it. You know, I mean, that's just next level fucking math or whatever. And no one ever said, do you like apples? Okay, other than that, it's a great fucking movie. Um, Lots of meatheads, but they seem oddly smart and are always very helpful. I was trying to talk to someone stupid uh, for the experience. Well, aren't you a fucking cocksucker? You just went up there and you were trying to talk to somebody dumb so you could just have an experience of talking to somebody dumb. Dumb. Uh, I talked to a guy dropping lots of R's and other various letters for a few minutes, and he was really intelligent. But tell me, why is masshole a thing? Um, well, part of it is just a simple thing that if you travel, what you'll quickly realize is that you know, especially as a comedian, if you're having a bad set and you need a laugh and you don't have a local reference to identify with the people, just make fun of whatever state the state you're in borders and you'll get a laugh. Like if you're in Wisconsin, you make fun of Minnesota or Illinois, right? If you're in Iowa, you make fun of Illinois. But what's north of that? Minnesota. If you're in North Dakota, you make fun of South Dakota or Montana. If you're in Montana, you make fun of Idaho. You get the deal. That's all you do. Because so like Masshole comes from, you know, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Rhode Island and New York. I think that that's where it all comes from. Basically, Maine doesn't border uh, Massachusetts, but you can drive through just the bottom corner. 
of New Hampshire, and you, you're out of Massachusetts and into Maine within like fucking a half an hour. And I just think, uh, I don't know. We go up to different states. Well, you know what? We go up to fucking Lake Winnipesaukee or Sugarloaf Mountain skiing or fucking, you know, getting drunk on a boat and we act like a bunch of fucking assholes, probably. I don't know. I grew up in Massachusetts, so I have no idea where that comes from. But like, um, I will tell you, there is a brilliance to the meatheads that are in Massachusetts. And um, I find my New York friends begrudgingly have to admit how funny the average person is that walks around Boston. They're just like, I, I can't explain it. I mean, and I don't even know if that's still like a thing, but it was when I was growing up where there was so many fucking people that are a thousand times funnier than I will ever be. And I'm not being humble. I'm being dead serious. Like they fucking, they're way funnier than I'll ever be, but they don't even know that they're being funny. They're literally just living their lives. And I've always said like, some people tell the story, that's me. And some people are the story. And uh, the people that are the story are like, I don't know what the deal is. Like they just, the shit that they say and the stuff that they do, like um, they're just sort of like fearless. Like just the kind of people that would literally, you know, I don't know, like the amount of fights I walked away from because it's like, I don't want to get the shit kicked out of me. And then also I'm not fighting you here. I'm not fighting you. I'm not going to get into a fist fight in the men's clothing department at Jordan Marsh. I'm not doing that. But other people would. And they, it would never dawn on them how fucking hilarious it was to get into a fist fight at an anchor store at a mall, you know, or at a sporting event or in a fucking, you know, a line waiting for like pizza or something like that because they were just wired differently, you know, and like... You know, I went to a Patriots game one time, like a fucking preseason game, and two of my buddies went to, down to get a beer. And when they came back, one of my buddies was laughing his ass off. And then my other buddy, he, his fucking, the collar of his shirt, he had a T-shirt on, was completely ripped, and he had a bloody lip. And the other guy was laughing his ass off because he, like, started the fight. And the guy, whatever he said, this dude thought my other buddy said it and suckered my buddy, and then my buddy won the fight, and then they were gonna get kicked out, and somebody else said, no, 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 they didn't start it, the other guy started it, and the security guards just believed him. So they let you stay. There's no fucking, I think I just told this, I can't remember, my head's spinning. I might have told this story a few podcasts ago. But like, I mean, they let him go back to his seat with his shirt ripped and a, like an actively bleeding lip. Like, they would never let you do that. Like, everybody would be gone. There's a fucking judge in a fucking courthouse at half of these goddamn ballparks. It was just sort of like, uh, I don't know what it was. It was just a, a I, I don't know. It's just a very, uh, I don't know what the word is. It was just fucking weird. There was just always fights. Always something stupid going on. Always somebody trying to steal something that was so ridiculously big and awkward and that they would get caught and then they had to go to court. People forever had fucking broken hands from getting into fights. And then they would just show up to work with a broken hand and a fucking black eye, drinking a Dunkin' Donuts coffee. And... uh and you'd be like, dude, what happened? Ah, you know, I got a fucking fight, you know, standing outside of Leech Mayor. I was trying to put a lamp in the back of my mom's station wagon. I see this guy, he's fucking eyeballing me. I was like, buddy, if you're going to fucking stare at me, you could at least fucking help me out. Or why don't you just fucking take that look somewhere else? So next thing you know, we're rolling around on the fucking ground. Like, that was like, and they're telling the story and like, they're not trying to be funny. They're just saying what the fuck happened. So, I don't know. And somewhere in that, I don't know. I think the mass whole thing came about. I don't know. All right. Uh, Experts and eggs. Oh, this is a fucking cool email here. Actually, you know, I read this one before the podcast here. Dear Bill, I'm with you on the experts problems. I'm a lab scientist with 35 years of experience. 
I've worked with, not for the FDA. I've consulted for drug companies and food companies in over a half dozen different concentrations. I'm what you would call an expert, but most of the people in my field should really be called know-it-alls. Um, a lot of these experts often change side, sides and their recommendations routinely follow the interests of who's writing the check. I got to be honest with you. I don't know how the fuck people live their lives like that. That you would literally change your opinion on something because you now work for somebody like. You know, people are giving this food to their kids. How could you knowingly say something wrong or not even give a fuck about what you were saying? The almighty dollar. Uh, Science requires questions. Real science welcomes questions, answers them gladly and says we don't know when something is unknown. Yeah, that's why science is way more interesting to me than religion. Like, what do they always say in religion? Like, that's not for us to know, but for him to say, and you'll find out when you die. Can we have some more money, please? Um, How refreshing would it be in, like, religion? Hey, Father, what happens when you croak? Uh, You know what? I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea if you go to a happy place, if you're just dead. If you get punished for being bad, I have no fucking idea. You know, I don't, you know, I don't get any of that shit. I don't get anything about religion. I don't get the whole fact that like, what if you are a good person and then something so fucking horrible happens to you as a kid, you end up being fucked up and then you just live a fucked up life. And then what, you go to hell for the rest of your life? because of something that happened to you when you were a kid. It just doesn't make any fucking sense. And it's just like, why do, does bad things ha- why do bad things happen to children? Why do they see domestic violence? Why do they get beaten? Why do they get molested? Why does all of that shit happen? And then like, there's no help for those kids. And then they go out into the fucking world and you know, then they start acting like an asshole and then you die and then God's mad at you when he made the fucking child molester to begin with. But then he blames and says, oh, no, it was the devil. It was the devil. And you listen to the devil, you fucking so-and-so. So now I'm going to burn you forever. I mean, it doesn't make any sense as opposed to science, which goes like, OK, this is the X factor. This is the answer. We're going to try to go back to the birds to the question or here's the question. And we're going to try to work our way out to the answer and all of this shit has to fucking check out. And when it all checks out, then they have the answer. But then they're also still open to the fact that in the future, they might realize that the way that they got to the answer, there was some fly in that ointment and that needs to be adjusted so that they they can come to the new right answer. Right? I don't know. Anyway. When all of a sudden eggs were considered bad for you. Okay, so people who didn't hear the other podcast, I was like, in my lifetime, eggs have been good for you, bad for you, good for you. And now I feel like they're they're starting to come back around where I'm starting to hear some chatter that they might be bad again. So this person says, when all of a sudden eggs were considered bad for you, there was little pushback by academics who should have been questioning why suddenly the egg was bad. Where were the studies and tests? Well, there were very few, and they cherry-picked the information to say the cholesterol was bad. But science had known about different types of cholesterols, and eggs shouldn't have been considered a problem. So basically, they were good cholesterol. People ate eggs thousands of years before all the heart diseases were as prevalent as they are now. And of course, we found out that the sugar industry paid off groups like the FDA to recommend low-fat, high-carb diets. Can you imagine working for the fucking FDA and they come in there with that suitcase full of cash and then you go out there and fucking send out all this misinformation that causes people to have fucking heart disease. It's unfucking believable Why aren't they held accountable? Who is in the FDA? Who are these people? You have no fucking idea. I guess the FDA needs to start putting out fucking food specials so people can hold them accountable. Um, is it wise to be skeptical of experts in a lot of s- sponsored fields? 
Uh, oh, it is wise to be skeptical of air quote experts in a lot of sponsored fields. Experts are increasingly losing their expertise. There's a great video of a lifelong environmentalist slash farmer slash old timer who talks about dealing with young experts who don't go into the field or believe anything unless it's in a book that's been peer reviewed, i.e. signed off on by those in charge. All right, so I'll give you the name of this thing. Um, Alan Savory. Savory? A-L-L-E-N-S-A-V-O-R-Y. What is science? Um, check that, that one out if you can. And uh, I'll tell you one of the worst things is that they're going to make mushrooms that help me so much just on two trips uh, that those things will eventually become legal and the fucking pharmaceutical industry, I guarantee you, will immediately, one of the first things they'll do so it tastes better is they're going to put fucking sugar in it like they do with fucking those goddamn gummies and all of that stuff. Like, like I don't know shit about science and all that, but I can tell you right now, Weed is, I'm t- since it's become legal, is probably way more worse for you than it was back in the day when you had to smoke an entire bag just to feel a little fucked up. Um, and from what I heard the other day, like all modern medicines are part of the, the mushroom coaching tree and that they're going to go in and for profit, fuck that up and make taking mushrooms now have side effects that need to be treated by their fucking drugs it's so fucking evil and none of them get held accountable and, and they're literally killing people and fucking with nature. You know, the fact that a group of fucking people can go out and like change, like have biochemically engineered food. They're literally fucking with the food supply. Um, it's a terrorist act, I believe, and nothing happens to them. Um, anyway, fucked up story. Yo, Bill Thrill. Um, my brother and I are both vets and we have a running joke about how poorly vets are treated. Um, another thing that's nobody is held accountable for. I hate to make light of a fucked up situation, but it gets us through. Exactly. It's called gallows humor. You know, you're making a joke, not because you don't care. It's because you do care. And you don't want to feel the pain. And for some reason, these fucking literal Larrys out there don't understand that. How can you joke about something like that? Because it's painful, you fucking asshole. That's what comedy is. Or can be. It's like a fucking topical anesthetic for your feelings so you don't actually feel the fuck that fucking pain. And you're a moron because you're sitting just stating the obvious. What just happened is sad. Thank you. Um, anyway, I just this person says, I just read a crazy story about a vet in Canada who called the PTSD hotline. Um, I can't remember what the D, post-traumatic stress. I don't know what. Um, anyway, the person he spoke with didn't give him guidance or direct him to mental health options. Get this, instead they offered him medically assisted death. Jesus Christ. The guy said, I laughed my ass off at the absurdity of this and my heart went out to the vet. I completely understand that reaction because what else are you going to do? What else are you going to do? Um, I remember reading in that, uh, that book Johnny Carson's lawyer wrote, and just how mean and cold his mother was. And anytime Johnny would try to do something nice for her to try to get the loving emotion from his mom that he so wanted, she would be even colder when he would try to get that from her. And she would be so fucking mean. All he could do is just then retell the story to his lawyer and then he would just start laughing because what the fuck else are you going to do? Um, yeah, so you hear something like that. You know, you love your buddies. You have a bond. You served. And the fact that someone would say that is just so fucking horrible. What else are you going to do other than laugh? So anyways, he said, I laughed my ass off at the absurdity of this and my heart went out to the vet. I honestly think that they should have 
a public execution of the person who took that man's call. The only way to protect the sanctity of life would be to publicly murder the person who disrespected it. Right, Bill? So see that? Underneath that joke, there's in those last two sentences is his real emotions about how much the person cares. And then there's the anger underneath it. Um, that was actually a great lesson in comedy, that whole how comedy can work. Um, so he has to laugh at it to to keep at bay the pain that then turns into murderous fucking thoughts. Um, I relate to that on an obviously much lesser level. Um, I can't believe someone did that. Well, how about, you know, yeah, we can't solve the problem. How about we help you kill yourself? Jesus Christ. All right, let's hope this one's a little more happier than that. All right, old school home remedies. All right. Hi, Bill. I know it's been a while since you talked about home remedies from older generations. I'd like to submit something my, my grandmother swore by. She would tell us grandma, grandchildren to never, ever swallow bad spit. Basic saliva was okay for this woman, but if you have what she would call, what we would call these days as a loogie, yeah, if you get phlegm and all that, she worked in the yard a lot with her plants and in her garden, constantly spitting, never had allergies, and she lived to be 98. She claimed that everything we cough up or hack up was all the stuff that caused disease. As I approach my mid-30s, I'm more inclined to believe she was on to something. Keep spitting, Bill. <laughs> love you and love the podcast. Um, all right, that is the podcast. I apologize if, uh, for it being late and also that I babbled um, about Fenway Park. I still cannot believe, I just can't believe that that happened. And... Um, I, am, I, I don't know that how long it's going to take for me to actually process it because it, the crowd was so fucking big and I had to make sure that I didn't lose them. But, like, I'll tell you in the end, when I said goodnight and everybody stood up, like, I will never, ever forget that. It was f fucking unbelievable. So there you go. Here's your inspiration for the week, all right? You can suck at reading out loud and you can suck at math and you can go to summer school and uh, but if you follow your hat and you go where you're supposed to go, you're going to be just fine in life. So don't let anybody scare the shit out of you. You're going to be fine. All right. That is all. And with that, go fuck yourselves. Football season is coming. And so are the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. They're only eight games out. <laughs> I'm just sitting there right now. I'm like the old guy Muppet on the Muppet show. Just fucking... I, this is my, my worst thing. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get out of this. I'm not going to sit here and just root for the Yankees to lose. I think that's just a really fucking bitchy sports fan thing to do, even though I know all the Yankee fans would do that. I just think it's bad karma and all of that. Um, the Red Sox are out of it at this point, I think, barring an amazing comeback. I'm still going to watch them, but I'm also going to root for Aaron Judge to break Roger Maris's steroid-free home run record. I, I really hope he gets it. Um, so that's it. Go fuck yourselves, and I'll check in on you on Thursday.